Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure you're in fellowship. Use First John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you revealed yourself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who made you known to us in his incarnation. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your written word and that as we study your word that God the Holy Spirit who indwells us uses that to produce spiritual maturity in our lives and produces spiritual fruit that glorifies you and has an eternal impact. Now, Father, as we study these things tonight, we pray that we might focus on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, remembering that all of these details related to Israel's worship in the Old Testament were ultimately designed to teach about uh, your uniqueness and about your provision of salvation and the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We are have been studying in the tabernacle. And I've been starting off each week with this uh, diagram of the layout of the tabernacle so that you have that in mind. And uh, this week I loaded up some pictures that I've had for a while on a place that no longer exists in Israel. They took this down. They did have a place called uh, the Tabernacle in the Wilderness that was located down in the uh, southern part of the Judean desert, somewhat south of the Dead Sea, between there and a lot down on the on the Red Sea, near a place also called Solomon's Pillars. And this first picture that you see is taken from uh, high above the area, looking down through uh, this rock formation they call Solomon's Pillars, at this reconstruction, full-scale uh, reconstruction of the tabernacle. Uh, we went by there a couple of years ago, but they had already taken it down. I'd heard they'd moved it somewhere else, tried to find it. Uh, they said they moved it up near Jericho, but it's, there's not one there, so I uh, haven't seen one. This gives you an idea, though, of the scale and the size of the, of the tabernacle. Uh, this picture shows what it would be like standing down going inside the gate, the one and only gate. Let me back up. As we see here, and as I pointed out, there's only one entry into the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the term tabernacle means dwelling place. It focuses on the uh, physical place where God dwelt. He had his indwelling presence, also uh, known by the Hebrew word shakan, which means to dwell. So that came to be called the shekinah, or the dwelling glory of God. It's not used, shekinah is not used in the uh, Old Testament, but it was used by the by the rabbis as a description of 
God's dwelling in the tabernacle comes over into Greek and other languages as the word skene, which is what's used in John 1.14. So in this shot, we see the uh, <clears throat> brazen altar in the forefront, then the laver, and then the tabernacle itself, the uh, building and the uh, various coverings that were over it. In this shot, we get another view from the entry of the tabernacle back towards the uh, altar and the uh, laver. Here's the laver. We've studied each of these, that the brazen altar depicts substitutionary sacrifice. The, tabber, the, uh, excuse me, the laver pictures the need for ongoing cleansing from sin. We get an idea of each of these here. Uh, this is the, sac- the altar with a ramp that the priest would use to have easier access uh, to the altar. You have some idea of the size. Looking down in the altar, we see the uh, grate that was over the fire where the sacrifices would have been burnt. Now, in this next picture, we get a closer look at the sides of the uh, tabernacle itself, the holy place. The, the size of the boards is they fit together and covered in gold, but most people did not see this because of the coverings that were above it. And then here we see the inside of the coverings, the different colors of the cloth with the uh, depiction of the cherubs embroidered on the inside. This gives a shot of the external uh, Curtain separating the place of God's dwelling, uh, setting it apart from the common or everyday place. And then here in this picture, we see the outer part inside the tabernacle proper called the holy place where you have the uh, menorah or the golden candlestick that would be to the left and that would be to the south side and then to the uh, the altar of incense against the veil to the Holy of Holies, and then the table of showbread was on the right. So far we've talked about the menorah on the left. That was the last lesson a couple of weeks ago. We missed out because of the uh, storm last week. And so uh, tonight I want to focus on the table of showbread and its significance. This is a place where uh, 12 loaves of unleavened bread were set out before the presence of God or before the face of God, as we'll see, as a picture, uh, the 12, of course, depicted the 12 tribes of Israel, and then you would also have various uh, instruments and vessels and bowls that were used in the making of the, of the bread. So last time we looked at the lampstand, that that pictures Christ as the light of the world. All these elements picture something about either the person or the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at what the Old Testament says about the lampstand and then tied that into Christ's statements in John that he is the light of the world. We'll do the same kind of thing tonight. Looking at the table of showbread, we'll look at how it was used in the worship of Israel. We'll look at all the descriptions and um, guidelines for its construction And then we will see that that is the backdrop for understanding Christ's statements in John chapter 6, where he says that he is the bread of life. So he's consciously identifying himself with these different elements 
within the tabernacle so that the Jews can make the connection and see how the Old Testament uh, in, in the Old Testament ritual uh, depicted who he was and what he would do. So first of all, let's look at the names for the table of showbread. In the Hebrew, uh, the spelling is different. You probably read this when you were a when you were young and when I was young, and I would read showbread. S-H-E-W, and wonder what in the world that was and how that differed from show, S-H-O-W, but it's just the archaic uh, English spelling. The Hebrew is the word lechem hapanim. Lechem is the word for bread, just like you have in the, in the city Bethlehem, the house of bread, Bethlehem. And lechem hapanim, Panim means face, and the H-A at the beginning is the article in the Hebrew. So it literally means bread of the face, that is, bread that is set before the face or the presence of God. Face of God, of course, as we studied, uh, for those of you who survived and made it through on Tuesday night with our uh, in-depth discussion on figures of speech, that the face of God is an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a face as Men have faces. This is just gives us a, it's just an idiom for the presence of God, and so the bread is set before the face of God or the presence of God. And some passages it's referred to as lechem hamareket, which means the bread of the ordering, and that's mentioned in First Chronicles chapter nine, verse thirty-two. In Numbers four seven, it's described as the continual bread because there was always to be this offering of the showbread on the table before God. Each Sabbath it would be taken down and replaced by fresh bread, and the bread that had been out for a week would not have grown stale any more than the manna would have grown stale overnight on the Sabbath and the rest of the week it did, or that the Israelites' clothes ran out uh, or were worn out during the uh, time in the wilderness. God uh, kept it fresh so that the priests would have bread at the end of the week. The bread would go to feed uh, to feed the, pr- the priests. So it was always to be before the presence of God, and so it's called continual bread. It's a perpetual offering to the Lord, according to Numbers chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, the idea of showbread is that it refers to the arrangement of the bread in rows, an or- orderly display before God, as, as it's mentioned in several passages in the Old Testament. Although the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the golden lampstand are not in the Holy of Holies itself, which is actually where the Shekinah dwelt, between the cherubs, God is enthroned between the cherubs on the mercy seat, because they were just outside of the Holy of Holies, they were spoken of as being in the presence of God. They were before God's presence. That's an important thing to note. When we think about our passage in Hebrews, just so you didn't forget that we're actually studying Hebrews on on Thursday night, and in our study of Hebrews chapter 9, we're diverting ourselves just a little bit to go back and study the tabernacle so we can make a little more sense of what is uh, taught in Hebrews 9. 
And in Hebrews 9, verse 2, we read, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. Now, the uh, golden censer was actually in the outer place, and it's, but it's just up against the the veil so that the incense would be drawn into and through the Holy of Holies, a depiction of prayers going up before God. Now, the description of the temple is given in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. There are two central passages for the table of showbread. They are Exodus 25, 20. Uh, 3 to 30, and Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. And in the description in Leviticus 20, uh, 24, 5 through 9, we have a description of what they should do in uh, preparing the bread and establishing it and placing it out on the table. In verse 5 we read, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord, and you shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, the frankincense was also to depict the fact that this was a value to the Lord, that it depicts this offering and its... Um, and that it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And I have down there in the corner a picture of a bowl of frankincense crystals that we saw when we were going through the shuk in Jerusalem. And actually that's just cropped from a picture where they had about 24 bowls of different kinds of incense. But this way you get to focus on just the the one they had all manner of different seasonings and it was just it's just an amazing thing to walk through the uh, arab quarter or the muslim quarter in jerusalem verse 8 goes on to say every sabbath he shall set it in order before the lord continually there's a, another reference to the continual sacrifice being taken from the children of israel by an everlasting covenant and it shall be for aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. This also happens to be the background for what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 9, that just as the priests lived off of the offerings to the Lord, uh, Paul applies that to the New Testament church, that the pastor... Uh, those who are serving the Lord in vocational ministry have a right to earn their living from the gospel ministry. And this is his precedent that he uses as goes back to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 9. Now, what we see in these verses is that the bread consisted of 12 loaves made of the finest flour. And the fact that it is made from the finest flour emphasizes the value of the person of Christ. There's no leaven, so it's a picture of his impeccability because leaven is always a picture of sin. It's only uh, There's only a couple of passages that indicate that it's unleavened. I'll get to those in a minute. But it is 
it, it's the finest flower. It pictures the value and the uniqueness of the person, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we note from these uh, verses is that the bread of the presence consisted of these 12 very large loaves. Each was made of one-fifth of an ephah of fine flour. Now, an ephah is just over a bushel. So when you make a loaf of bread from one-fifth of a bushel of flour, that would make a rather substantive loaf of bread. So each of um, these, these uh, loaves represented two and a half bushels of finely ground wheat to make uh, these 12 loaves. Uh, they were flat and thin. They're placed in two rows of six each on a table in the holy place before the Lord and then sprinkled with frankincense. And this was a picture of the also the value of the offering to the Lord. Each Sabbath, according to Leviticus 24, 5, and 9, 5 to 9, each one was, was um, removed each Sabbath and new ones were placed there. The former ones were to be eaten by the priests only in the holy place. So they were to eat the bread there in the holy place. Now that's going to become somewhat important in an episode that we'll get to uh, a little later on in the New Testament when Jesus takes his disciples and they are uh, eating the grain as they go through the fields. And, the, and it's on a Sabbath, and the Sadducees challenge, or the Pharisees challenge them on that. And we'll look at that in the background to it in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So that gives us the, the basic description and prescriptions for the provision of the table and its use. The next passage... Which, uh, that I've mentioned as a central passage is in Exodus 25, uh, 23 to 30. And that passage gives us the description of how the table was to be constructed. How the table was to be constructed. This begins in Exodus 25, uh, 23. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. In the Hebrew, this is shatim. It is an extremely hard, dense wood that is very resistant to any kind of rot or mildew or decomposition. And the point, of course, is that the, the, the wood would also represent the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ as in impeccability. It's not corruptible and he, as he was impeccable. So the acacia wood rep, that they used in the construction of the tabernacle was made of, uh, was, was designed to teach the impeccability of Christ and it would be overlaid with gold, pure gold, which would depict the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were to make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So that means that the table would be approximately three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and two and three-tenths feet high. So it would come up a little below, you know, for, for me, it would come up a little below waist high. It was probably over waist high for the uh, Israelites, for the priests at that time. We have archaeologists have uncovered burial sites from this early period, and so we know that the average height of an Israelite male at this time was about five foot six or five foot seven. And that was true even up through the period of David. But that's not uh, unusual 
in ancient times or even in more modern times, I bumped my head on many a door frame in an old house when I was uh, up in New England. And you would walk through, and, he, and in the church up there, which was built in 1811, uh, they had to uh, expand the door frame somewhere along the way. You just go into all these old houses, and, and the door frame set at about, the top of the door is about six foot. So if you're not careful, you think you're going to make it, and it just takes you off right at the right at the forehead. So they were, uh, average height of the adult male was about about five and a half feet tall. So that table would come up to their waist or a little higher. Uh, verse 20, 24 says, You shall overlay it with pure gold, make a molding of gold all around. So there would be a, a finely uh, constructed molding in the gold that would surround the table at the, at the top. And it was decorated in an artistic fashion. This is not just utilitarian or pragmatic. This would be designed with beauty for God the Holy Spirit, specifically gave wisdom or skill. Actually, the Hebrew says chokhmah, which has the idea in many passages of wisdom, but the root idea is skill to Bezalel and Aholiab, who were the goldsmiths, the jewelers, the designers, and to the, the other craftsmen, so that what they made was of beauty. And that relates to the whole doctrine of aesthetics and how important that is in God's creation. And this is one thing I've emphasized when we've talked about music in the past and worship and even church architecture to the degree that we can do it. Uh, we need to reflect the various uh, attributes of God. And one of those is that when God creates, he creates with beauty. It's not just a pragmatic creation. We go out and we look at the flowers and trees and everything in God's creation has this remarkable, incredible beauty with it. It's not just practical. It just doesn't just work. It has beauty with it. So that would be reflected in all of the furniture in, in the uh, tabernacle. Verse 27 it would have rings along the edge close to the frame as holders for the poles to carry the tables. You can see in our uh, model here that we have from that was designed by the folks at Goodseed, we have the, uh, the rings on the side and the two poles with the two uh, loaves uh, sitting on top of the table of showbread. The poles would also be made out of acacia wood and gold, and that was how they would carry it. Verse 29 and 30 describes the other implements, the accessories that went with the table. These would be used in the baking of the bread. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table always before me. So everything would be handled uh, with these vessels made of gold other than when it was actually uh, actually baked. And then the gold would not, of course, withstand the, uh, the heat from that. The serving vessels are described uh, in verse 29 and 30. Dishes, which were used as bread pans, were made for carrying the bread into the holy place. There were spoons or incense cups, which would handle the frankincense. 
uh, which was poured on top of the bread, and then covers that are mentioned there, it's pitchers, it's bowls for uh, it's bowls for pouring. All of these were made from from pure gold. In the by the New Testament period, at least, or by the end of the Old Testament period, the priests had developed a set ritual and practice for removing the uh, old bread at the end of the week and replacing it with new bread. According to the Mishnah, uh, we have a description. Now, it always takes folks, I know it took me uh, a while, but to try to understand the difference between the Mishnah and the Talmud. The Mishnah was the record, the written record of the teaching of the rabbis. It wasn't actually written down, or much of it wasn't written down, and didn't reach its final form until near the end of the first century, after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and into the beginning of the second century. But what is taught in the Mishnah was passed down through oral tradition and probably some written for at least two or three centuries prior to its uh, final form in what we now call the Mishnah. The Mishnah records these debates among the rabbis, and uh, often when I read the Mishnah, I'm reminded about how we've just repeated the same kind of history in modern theology. What you have typically is a question that is posed, and then they'll say, well, rabbi so-and-so said this, and rabbi so-and-so said that, and then rabbi such-and-such says this, and this is what we're going to do. And a lot of times they don't even come to a conclusion, and you had different schools of thought following different rabbis. And now you pick up many uh, commentators, many commentaries on the Bible, and they'll give you all the different positions or different interpretations on a verse, and then they say, well, it's most likely it means this, but we're not sure, and that's the implication. And unfortunately, too many seminary students are coming out of seminaries today, and they can tell you the five positions on that this passage or the four positions on that passage, but they can't tell you what it means because they don't have an integrated, consistent, systematic theology to, to orient everything and to pull everything together. So you end up with this sort of spiritual agnosticism that we're pretty sure what God means, but, you know, so-and-so says this, and this pastor says that, and this other theologian says this, so how do you know? And people in the pew are left thinking, well, if these guys who know the original languages and have been to seminary can't tell me what, what it means, then how am I supposed to know what it means? And what this really reflects is not so much the fact that we have difficulty understanding what, what God is communicating as that modern man has a theory of knowledge that he doesn't think can give him absolute truth. And so just like the culture as a whole is impacted by relativistic views of knowledge, uh, so too the seminaries are impacted by relativistic views of, of uh, hermeneutics and that gets into a totally different uh, different study. So the Mishnah recorded what the rabbi said, and then in the subsequent centuries, from about the 2nd century on down to the 5th or 6th century, you had rabbis writing commentary on the Mishnah. And the commentary that they wrote on the Mishnah is called the Talmud. And this is the development of rabbinical Judaism. And rabbinical Judaism has nothing to do with the Old Testament. It has to do with what the rabbis taught. And uh, much like 
Roman Catholics don't have a clue what the Bible says. They can just tell you what their priest tells them or what the Pope has said, but they never read the text for themselves. The same is true with Orthodox Jews. They debate among themselves the different rabbinical views, but they don't ever really read the text or study the original text for themselves. And if you have a copy of a Talmud, what you will see is you'll have a large page, and in the middle of the page there will be uh, a square double column square, which is the Mishnah, and that will be bordered by a white border of white space. And then around the outer borders, you have more text, and that's the, that's the Talmud. And so they will come uh, together in one book. Well, according to the Mishnah, this is how they would uh, conduct the ceremony. Four priests entered the holy place, two of them carrying the piles of bread, and two of them the cups of incense. Four priests, four priests would have gone in before them, two to take off the two old piles of showbread and two to take off the cups of incense. Those who brought in the new bread stood at the north side facing southward. Those who took away the old bread stood on the south side facing northward. Uh, one part lifted off and the other put on, the hands of one being over against the hands of the other, as it is written, Thou shalt set upon the table bread of the Passover always before me. The loaves that were removed were delivered to the priests for their uh, for their consumption within the tabernacle, the whole quantity amounting to 75 pounds of bread per week. So they had a very formal procedure for making sure that that the bread was was transferred properly. Now, when we look at any of these articles of furniture within the tabernacle, as I pointed out at the beginning, they picture something about either the person or the work, or sometimes both, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is called a type, T-Y-P-E, which is sort of an old English word. We might use the word illustration or the word uh, a shadow image or a foreshadowing, uh, but type is a basically a more technical term. Now, it's based on the Greek word tupos, T-U-P-O-S, the U or upsilon is often transliterated with a Y when it comes into English. And tupas can have a general meaning of example. And it's used that way several times in the New Testament. And you have to be careful, or students of the Word have to be careful, just because the Bible uses the word tupas doesn't necessarily mean it's talking about a type of Christ. It may just be a broader example or illustration. A type is a little more of a a uh, more narrow, narrowly technical uh, depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we look at the at the uh, all these elements, all the pieces of furniture, and these are types or pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, what they depict is the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity. And I have three points on that. First of all. The shatim, as I pointed out, the shatim wood is hard, incorruptible, indestructible wood that grows in the Sinai Desert. And that pictures the incorruptible, impeccable humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second point there is the... The second sentence there is the second point. The, the shatim wood is a hard, incorruptible, indestructible wood. That's point one. Point two, this depicts the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of its incorruptibility and impeccability. 
And then the third point, the indestructibility of the wood pictures Jesus as able to withstand the temptations to sin and the ability to handle the judgment for sin, as well as the decaying effect of the grave, according to Acts 2.31, and it's a quotation from the Psalms that his body did not undergo corruption and his bodily, physical bodily resurrection. So all of that is depicted through the use of the shittim wood or acacia wood. In terms of the undiminished deity of Christ, we see that pictured in the gold. The gold in the table pictures Jesus' deity. It uh, emphasizes the value, the beauty, and the glory of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second point, the Bible explicitly states that Jesus is fully God. Passages like John 1, 1, John 10, 30 to 33, and John 20, 28 specifically state Jesus is fully God. Now, what's important here is that as, as Arnold Fruchtenbaum has pointed out, what happens in the early church by the early part of the second century, there starts to develop a split between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. So that by the end of the second century, Jewish Christians have basically become isolated from their Gentile counterparts. And at this same time, there's the introduction of allegorical interpretation. And with that, there begins to seep into Christianity a uh, mild but definite anti-Semitism. And as a result of this, by the end of the third century, you have a primarily Gentile church that is so isolated from its Jewish roots that uh, students of the word no longer understand the culture out of which the Bible came. So they're interpreting Jesus and his teaching and his ministry totally within their the frame of reference that they have in terms of a Greco-Roman culture and not in terms of the Jewish culture, which is the immediate context at the time in which Jesus ministered. And as a result of that, they, they don't have the benefit of truly understanding these images and the typology in the Old Testament. That's has always surprised me because when we go back and we look at these depictions in the tabernacle related to the humanity and the deity of Christ, it just helps us understand the hypostatic union so much better. But it took these early Christians because of the the fact that they were divorced from uh, the Jewish backgrounds. It took them a couple of hundred years to figure out how to properly articulate the hypostatic union. This is what gave rise to the debates uh, surrounding the Council of Nicaea and then the Council of uh, Ephesus and the Council of Constantinople and finally uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 when the hypostatic union is finally uh, settled and articulated. And so the definition that I use for the hypostatic union is one that is uh, that borrows its language primarily from the Chalcedonian Confession of 451 A.D. 
And so we define the hypostatic union as the person of the, in the relating to the person of the incarnate Christ, as the union of two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. And it's very important to talk about that and think about that precisely. The one person hungers. The one person is tired or weary. The one person turns the water into wine. The one person is heals. But some of these miracles that he did, for example, the changing of the water into wine, demonstrate that he is fully God and that there is a true undiminished deity as part of his as as part of his nature. So his one person has a divine nature. The fact that he hungered and that he thirsted and that he was tired that he uh, came under emotional stress, as he did in the garden uh, the night before he goes to the tomb, indicates that he is true humanity. But he has a true human nature as well. So these two natures are both there within the one person. And we always have to be careful how we articulate this and not talk about, well, Jesus did this, uh, Jesus did this out of his deity. Well, the one person did it, and that he did one thing may demonstrate he's full, fully God. That he did something else would demonstrate he's fully man, but they come from the one person. We can't fall into Nestorianism and as if there's two persons and two natures. There's one person and one nature. So these two natures are inseparably united a billion years from now. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, Jesus will still be in hypostatic union. 10,000 years later, he'll still be in hypostatic union. There will always be the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. These two natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity so that you don't, when, when the deity takes on humanity, the deity did, didn't lose anything. It didn't lose any of its divine attributes. Somehow the infinite took on affinitude without losing its infiniteness. There's no uh, mixture of, of characteristics or of attributes so that you don't have a blending of the two. That was the error of Eutychianism in the early church. So there's united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes. So he remains fully God and he has true humanity. The union is both personal and eternal. And that means that it is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's meant by personal. And it's eternal. It's everlasting. There will never be a time when Jesus is no longer in hypostatic, uh, hypostatic union. So the conclusion, Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. That's the short definition. John 1.14, Hebrews 1, uh, 2 and 3, and 1 John, 1 John 4.2. So those are key passages on understanding the hypostatic union. That is seen by the fact that the table uh, made of wood is then overlaid 
uh, with gold that depicts that that union between the divine and the human. And if the early church had just had a good handle on the imagery and the typology coming out of out of uh, Exodus and Leviticus, then that could have helped them understand so many things. It's not till the always amazes me. It's not until the 11th century that we have a clear articulation of substitutionary atonement uh, by Anselm of Canterbury in his work, Cur Deus Homo, uh, Why the God-Man. It's not that they didn't believe in substitutionary atonement. They talked that way. They used that language, but it's used in a somewhat naive or uh, non-critical way. It's just a quote. They're just restating what Scripture says that Christ died for you but they're not really analyzing what that means and in what way Christ died for uh, someone until uh, Anselm comes along and writes a very clear articulation of uh, substitutionary atonement. When we look at the uh, elements on the table itself, we have the showbread, which is the bread of the presence, and we see that this is Unleavened bread, according to Numbers chapter 6, verse 15, uh, this is a bread that is uh, not leavened. It is, uh, number 615 says, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offering. So the bread is unleavened, and that's, again, depicting the fact that Jesus Christ is without sin. To make the fine flour, several have pointed out that uh, the fine flour, the fine meal, has to be crushed, ground, and sifted, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ's uh, ministry on the earth in hypostatic union where he is uh, sifted by Satan during the period of the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, he is ground and crushed in the uh, suffering, in the buffeting, the beating, and the uh, flagellation that occurred prior to going to the cross and then his uh, death on the cross and his crucifixion for mankind. The bread also depicts the source of life. We need bread to live. So it not only depicts um, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to feed on that, and that comes out of John chapter 6 as well. Jesus says that, speaking metaphorically, it's not the doctrine of transubstantiation in the Roman Catholic Church. You're to eat my body and drink my blood, right? He precedes that by saying, I am the bread of life. And this whole thing is a picture of taking in and receiving Christ as our own, just as when we eat food, we're taking the food in and it becomes part of who we are. So that is the uh, pick the imagery that's there. So bread provides nourishment. In Deuteronomy 8.3, we have the statement, man shall not live uh, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the, the bread depicts the spiritual nourishment that God provides in his word. And there's a certain ambiguity there because he provides that nourishment through the living word, the logos, 
the Lord Jesus Christ and through the written word which we have, which is uh, the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it pulls it all together. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The baking of the bread depicts the judgment of sin imputed to Jesus Christ. The baking, it pictures that, that judgment as the refined flour is baked into loaves. It is a picture of Jesus Christ who goes through the fires of, of uh, judgment, speaking metaphorically the fires of judgment and suffering for us. As Peter states in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also has, has suffered uh, once for all suffered for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The frankincense pictures that sprinkled on the loaves pictures the value of Christ's death. Frankincense was a an extremely expensive spice in the uh, ancient world. It's a fragrant gum resin that has a silvery white cast to it. It's ground into powder, burned at the altar while the priest would eat the showbread on the Sabbath. And the, then the, uh, the fragrance from the incense, the frankincense, would fill the entire holy place and holy of holies. And that relates to the uh, continuing a prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. The offering of the bread uh, depicts f- grace-oriented free will giving, that this is given freely and it is not a condition, just as Jesus Christ was freely given by the Father for our salvation. And then last but not least, the eating of the bread is a picture of fellowship with God. And eating and having a meal together is a picture throughout the Scripture as of our fellowship with God. And as we come to the Lord's table, what we are doing is we are just memorializing a portion of that meal that the Lord had with his disciples, and it is a picture of our fellowship with God. That's why it's important for us to uh, confess our sins and be in fellowship before we partake of the Lord's table It is a picture of the fellowship that we have, which is in Christ and on the basis of his work on the cross, that fellowship in the body of Christ is not a social thing. It is fundamentally a relationship with God, and because we have that that vertical relationship with God and we have peace with God, then as a result of that, we have relationship with other human beings who are in the body of Christ, but that fellowship is always on the basis of God's Word. Christians can get together and they can socialize and they can have a party and they can have a lot of good time together, and they may not be in fellowship. And that doesn't have anything to do with biblical Christian fellowship. Not that that's a bad word. Some people think it is, but that's not a bad word. It's a good word. When you get together with believers and there is within that context of your time together uh, discussion of doctrine and the Lord and his word, then what grows out of that is true, genuine, biblical fellowship because Christ is at the center of it. So it's not just a social life, but it's something that is uh, integrally related and consciously tied to uh, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ within his body. 
As we go through the Old Testament, there's several other passages that talk about the table of showbread. The most significant is in 1 Samuel 21, 1. The other passages just mention it as part of ritual. For example, 1 Chronicles 9:32. But in 1 Samuel 21, 1, we have an episode where David is fleeing from Saul. David at this point is the Lord's anointed. God has had him anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. He is the anointed king, but not the reigning king. So he has been appointed, but he hasn't been installed yet. That's a great picture of the present ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been anointed, as it were, but he is like David sitting and waiting for God to give him the kingdom, which doesn't occur until the end of the church age period. So he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for God to give him the kingdom. And that's the background for what we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, Daniel 7, when the Lamb comes forward to take the scroll and to enact the judgments in order to establish his kingdom. So David, in this in-between period when Saul is persecuting him, Saul is chasing him, which is a picture of what happens during the church age when uh, Satan is persecuting the body of Christ while the Lord is waiting for the kingdom. David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, See, Ahimelech's fearful because he knows that Saul has his army out looking for David, and he's made David public enemy number one. And he says to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with the matter, and he said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I'm sending you and with which I've commissioned you, and I've directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest said to David, There's no ordinary bread on hand, but there's the consecrated bread. That's the bread on the table of showbread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. In other words, if they have refrained from uh, sexual activity recently, then we can uh, distribute the bread. And so uh, the bread then is brought out and uh, David's men are fed. And David says in verse 5, Surely uh, David answered the priest, said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy. Uh, there, though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now, there's a lot of different elements in this story, and I don't want to get distracted with those. I just want to focus on the fact that David is in a position where he is taking his men uh and he is on this journey, and he needs food. And so because he is the Lord's anointed, Ahimelech can give him the food, the bread from the table, and this is legitimate. And this is used in a very sophisticated argument by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew uh, chapter 12. The key verse in Matthew 12 are verses 3 and 4. But I want to read from the beginning of the chapter so that we pick up the context. Matthew chapter 12, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and to, began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, this just really 
upset the Pharisees because they said that this was work and you couldn't harvest grain. That's what they would define it as. And harvesting grain would be a violation of the sabbatical law. And so the Pharisees looked at him and used this to accuse him of violating the Mosaic law. When, verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to him, them, and notice how sophisticated his argument is here. He says, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions. So Jesus is comparing himself as the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, to David who was the Lord's anointed, and David's companions are compared to the Lord's disciples. And he says how David entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. So he is saying that there are exceptions within the law because this would be an application. They were starving. They were hungry. Application of the principle of loving your neighbor as, as yourself. And so Jesus then uh, is using this uh, in a very sophisticated way, it says um, in verse 6, we go on to read there, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But you, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, the point was that that the technicalities of the law were overridden by the principle of mercy and grace. And the principle of mercy and grace would be to love your neighbor as yourself and to provide for the needs of David, the Lord's anointed, and his men on the basis of grace, obeying the spirit of the law and not uh, not the letter of the law. So, uh, Jesus is giving the correct divine viewpoint interpretation of the law at that point and pointing out that uh, refuse, the refusal on the part of the priests would have violated the essence uh, of the law. And so he concludes in verse 8 by saying, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. As the Son of Man, he's saying, I'm the author of the law, and so I can determine how and why uh, it is applied. He's not, uh, he is not being, um, he's not turning the law, twisting it to his own advantage. He is simply stating that, that this fits within his original design. Now, we just have a few moments left, and I know we're getting short, and we don't have a lot of time to get into it, but John chapter 6 is the passage that deals with the depiction of this in uh, as in Jesus' bread of life uh, discourse. That is in John chapter 6. And even though we've got about five minutes late, left, I think I'm going to go ahead and stop here because John 6 is a tremendous passage and there is a, a lot there. It begins with the feeding of the 5,000 and then... You, that sets the stage as Jesus feeds the 5,000. It sets the stage for his discourse that he is the bread of life, the one who, of course, provides that which sustains us 
in the last part of the chapter, but we also get into one of those uh, tremendous uh, theological passage that comes up in verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this is a central passage that is used in Calvinism to substantiate the doctrine of irresistible grace that God is the one who draws people to himself and he only draws the elect to himself and he doesn't draw anyone else to himself. Now, if you want to know the truth of that, you'll have to come back next time. So let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see how our Lord Jesus Christ and his person and work is so clearly depicted in the ritual of the Old Testament and in the tabernacle. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things as we realize that they're not just historical facts, they're not just interesting uh, things related to the worship of Israel, but they are designed to give us a greater understanding and appreciation of your plan, your design, your preparation in bringing uh, the Lord Jesus as our Savior and in our understanding of who he is and our worship of him. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.